This is Tripwire with a special podcast, CMBX 6, The Next Big Short. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. And joining us today are two guests from MP Securitized Credit Partners, Katie McGee, Managing Director, and Dan McNamara, Principal. CMBX 6, one of a set of commercial real estate mortgage indices, this one, which originated in 2012, became a popular short with investors who bet that mall and retail closings were an irreversible trend, creating a cascade of CMBS retail loan defaults. When we first wrote about it, investors shorting CMBX 6, that is, no one envisioned an economic shutdown from a pandemic. But here we are. Welcome, Katie and Dan. Dan and Katie, um, before we get into CMBX specific questions, how about you give us a couple minutes on uh, MP and what your strategy is, um, how long you've been around, and uh, what you're focusing on now? Sure. Um, uh, MP has been around since 2008. It's a structured products hedge fund. Um, it has a heavy focus on CMBS. It's about three quarters invested in CMBS uh, and the rest in RMBS or ABS. Um, Really, we've been involved in CMBS across the spectrum um, from legacy CMBS to new issue CMBS to um, SASB and CRE CLOs. Um, the actual firm itself started in 2008 at Frontpoint. Our actual hedge fund goes back to 2008. Um, and Mark uh, Rosenthal and Noel Severis founded it at Frontpoint in 2008. And you know, you're well known, uh, along with a couple of others, for your big CMBX 6 short. When did you put that on? And um, what made this a better short than perhaps uh, shorting a mall REIT or REITs or individual retailer stocks at the time? I think I can answer that. Um, I would say, I think everybody in our market is pretty familiar with the Alder Hill white paper that came out in early 2017. So we can't take uh, full credit for coming up with the idea, but we actually didn't put it on at that time. We thought it was a little bit early. I think the main pushback from investors that we heard was just the negative carry that you would have to pay between then and, and 2022 loan maturities. Um, so we actually didn't put it on until probably 18 months later, mid-2018. I think Alder Hill had actually come out with a second white paper by then. Um, and, and we felt a little more confident that we were a little closer to maturity. We also originally actually had a basis trade on where we were long CMBX 7 and short CMBX 6 to make it more carry neutral and also because We'd done all the full underwriting and we thought that regardless of how bad retail got, that CMBX 7 malls would always fare better than CMBX 6 malls. Um, so it started as that and it actually, that basis trade I think worked a little quicker and better than maybe we had expected. So we ended up by the end of that year, we, we were left with just the outright short six side of the trade. Um, and then to, to answer the second part of your question, you know, I think by the time we really got involved, some of the other opportunities and other debt and equity markets to short distressed retail had kind of already played out. 
Um, well, if you look at CBL, for, for instance, you know, five years ago, it was trading at $20 stock price. And by the end of 2018, it was already down at $2, $2 I think. So it felt like a lot of the juice was gone. And I think for some of the lower quality mall REITs too, um, the dividend yields at that point were double digits. Um, the short interest was high. So it was actually a pretty expensive short to put on at the time. Um, especially relative to CMBX where you pay 300 basis points or 500 basis points um, running. So it just didn't make as much sense. We at the time had talked to a lot of crossover guys who were kind of echoing that sentiment. Um, people who were not familiar with CMBS, but were looking for a way to short retail and you know, we're willing to learn CMBS, which really says a lot um, to be able to, to look at this opportunity um, because they couldn't find feasible opportunities elsewhere in their, you know, normal markets. Um, so I think that kind of just confirmed where we were thinking, obviously we're CMBS people. So it was easier to look at that trade idea too. Um, and that's kind of where, where we ended up. Shorting uh, CMBX one through five was was obviously very profitable for people 15 years or 12 years ago, give or take. Uh, was this your first foray into CMBX or had you been uh, actively in that prior to joining MP? I mean, I, I've traded CMBX one through five pre-crisis. Um, I've been on the buy side and the sell side uh, for 16 years in structured products. Um, but in pre-2008, I was at UBS on the prop desk there uh, trading CMBS. So I was very familiar with CMBX going back to those days. And I should be more clear, it was very profitable for shorts, certainly not uh, <laughs> profitable for longs, just to, to make that. Um, yeah, we were lucky enough to be on the short side back then. Uh, unfortunately, the bank itself was not. But <laughs> <laughs> And what, um, you know, a lot has changed over the last 90 days. Uh, you've both earned a, a, a well-deserved reputation for really knowing the mall market. Um, you were saying uh, just before our call started that you were regular visitors to malls at various points to see how they were performing and so forth. Do you feel now a lot of pressure to become experts in hotels and other asset classes uh, that are getting punished right now? Or do you feel, um, and or do you feel like your trade needs to be revisited or doubled down on or adjusted because of all the things that have happened since the middle of March? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think the answer is really both. So, you know, despite how far we've come price-wise, we still think there's an attractive opportunity in six and potentially other indices um, from either the long or short side, but we're definitely kind of revisiting, um, readjusting all of our recovery values um, hotels is kind of the focus after malls, I would say. And I think it's a little bit early for us to tell. The underwriting is definitely a little bit difficult at this point. Um, there are a lot of different opinions on how quickly the hotel sector could come back or, or not come back. So, you know, I think we'll branch into a little bit outside of CMBX6 um, in the coming months and years. But but for now, CMBX6 is still a part of our portfolio and our in our main hedge fund um i would say you know compared to how we felt going into the year where 
we thought it was the best opportunity from either a long or short side. Um, now it's a little bit different. It's more a hedge in the context of a broader long short portfolio. Um, but, but we're definitely paying attention to kind of which deals and which indices have the most mall and hotel exposure. Other property types I think have been pretty safe so far in terms of like payment rates, but you know, that could change over time as well. So I think we'll probably have a broader focus going forward, but um, you know, I love looking at malls and mall collateral. So we'll keep up our mall visits and um, stay true to our roots, but it'll be a little bit broader focus going forward. Well, it may have to be mall visits along with a hotel stay to see how, uh, <laughs> how both are doing at some point. Well, they're not going to uh, stay if they're shorting the index. <laughs> that's right. You're going to get an yeah. RV to, uh, to, to tool around in. Um, yeah, I heard you guys were doing a tour on Route 66. How do we get uh, that's the hope. involved in <laughs> Well, like we said, we started with a, just a, maybe a, a Jeep. Uh, there was going to be four of us, and then it became an Econoline van, and now it's like a rock and roll tour bus. You know, we have more and more people that want to tag along. So uh, I think rock and roll tour buses can be had real cheap right now. So maybe we could pull that off. Single-handedly supporting the, the Econoline lodging right. sector. That's right. Um, when the year began, CMBX6, triple B minus was around 95 in dollar price. Now it's it's kind of mid-60s, give or take. Um, when you first went into the trade, when did you think it would pay off to this level? Was it 2022, 23, 24? Sometimes CMBS loans have long tails before the losses really hit. So what was your expectation for uh, when you'd really be able to monetize this? Yeah, I mean, we went into this fully expecting that, you know, it, the maturities are in 2022, um, average in middle of 2022. So we fully expected it was gonna go past maturity. Um, when we did all the underwriting, we didn't expect a lot of term defaults. We only expected six term defaults. Um, you know, a, a lot of the longs on the other side were saying that, you know, we're expecting that all the malls are going to die and that, you know, there will be all these term uh, defaults when really we were, we were honest about the whole situation. We only thought there'd be six and that we'd have to wait to till maturity and then past maturity, at least one, if not two years. So we were prepared to wait. Um, and obviously uh, with COVID, everything, the timeline sped up dramatically. Do you have a number that compares with that six now that you think would um, be subject to term defaults or do you want to keep that uh, under your hat? Uh, we haven't really finalized what we think the new number is, but I think based on performance so far, um, just late payments, 30 days special servicing, that we could probably assume that that's going to be higher at this point. Um, it's a little bit wait and see because I think a lot of these mall owners will probably get some type of short-term forbearance and then we'll kind of have to revisit in two to three months when it's time for them to start paying again. And that's maybe when we'll see defaults happen. But there were already um, a handful, probably at least three or four malls where the debt service coverage was already close to or at or below one. So those we were kind of patiently waiting on anyway, and, and that might be the time for those. And then I think a lot of other ones, especially if we're seeing, um, you know, some retailers that don't open back up, that permanently close or, you know, JCPenney closings, et cetera, um, that definitely pulls forward, I think, some of the defaults. So we'll see, but I guess to answer your question, it's higher. 
There uh, has been a lot of press about you guys, of course, being on the short side, Carl Icahn being on the short side, uh, a couple of big managers being on the long side. Um, is there any bias one way or the other right now that you could see, you know, are longs um, outnumbering shorts or shorts outnumbering longs, or is it a fairly even flow right now for, for people on either side of that trade? I, I think that the actual numbers are, um, you know, th th there's a significant amount of hedge funds on the short side of the trade. Um, and it has been that way for a, a few years now. Um, you know, we saw in March when the index started to really move, some crossover accounts, some distressed hedge funds, some hedge funds that are usually focused in the equity space come into our space to short the index. Um, on the long side, you know, it's been reported and you know, a lot of this is public anyways because their holdings are public. Um, it's really two large, very large mutual funds on the long side um, that they, they hold very concentrated positions in CMBX, single A's, triple B minuses and double B's. Um, so I would definitely say just from a number, you know, obviously the longs and shorts are balanced in the index, but from the number of players, um, it, there's a significantly more players on the short side than there are on the long side. When we went down this path um, 12 years ago, it, it kind of led to systemic risk coming out of the ABX side of the trade. Are people smarter now, would you say, and are people uh, in a position that have taken long uh, positions to kind of manage that, that risk and, and uh, avoid some of the pitfalls that took down the likes of uh, some of the players 12 years ago? I, th I think overall, yeah, people, people are obviously aware of what happened in 2008. I, I, the way this is going to play out, no one's really quite sure. Um, you know, the, the CMBX six specifically, it, it's all about the dispersion. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to play out like subprime played out where everything's going to go to zero. Um, there are, you know, a handful of deals in there that, that even today, you know, Katie and I will look at and we, we feel comfortable that, you know, they may make it at, at the single A level or the triple E minus level, depending on the deal. Um, so it, it really is, you know, very underwriting intensive at this point. Um, and it, you know, it, it takes a lot of work. It's not, it's not, it's definitely not, you know, I mentioned the crossover guys earlier, I think some some players from the short side um, don't fully understand the CMBX six and how it works, and you know that every deal is worth four points, um, and are just looking to short commercial real estate. Um, so th that's a little dangerous from the short side for for sure. Um, you know, from the long side, clearly the thesis has been for the last year or two. Um, the mutual funds have been very public about it's all about you know a carry trade, and the coupon is going to last for a long time. Um, you know, obviously I think COVID's changed that timeline a lot. Um, so I don't know if their thesis will change going forward or not. Um, but for us, you know, terminal losses are, losses are going to be higher and terminal recovery valves will be lower for, for, you know, but we, we don't have enough information yet. You know, I, I almost feel like in three to six months, we'll really have a feel for what we think double B six will, will, you know, terminal value for double six, double B six will be. Uh, a lot of the, um, you know, the headlines have been around the likes of JCPenney and Sears, um, you know, Lord and Taylor liquidating big names like that. But there's a number of names that have, have come through the last three or four years kind of fairly well. You know, the, the Dicks, Targets, Burlington's, Walmarts. Um, you know, how would you compare their trajectory to something like a Sears and a JCPenney, which has been kind of spiraling weaker and weaker for, you know, 15 years or more? 
Yeah, I think that's a fair question. Um, you know, I think it's two very different sides of the spectrum. Obviously, the talk around JCPenney and Sears has been, you know, very much warranted, in my opinion, in the mall conversation, just because of how big their presence is. Um, you know, I think if you look at JCPenney and assume there's a little over a thousand malls in the U.S., they're in about 60% of them. Um, at one point, Sears was in even more than that. Obviously, we have a lot of vacant anchors um, with more to come with JCPenney, potentially more than that, Lord & Taylor, Macy's, etc. Um, whereas on the other side, you have kind of the Dick's, Walmart. Walmart and Target, I think, are you know, very strong, stable, big box retailers. Um, but, but most of their locations are away from malls. You know, I've actually looked at it and, and thought that Walmart and Target are actually competitors to some of the traditional department stores and, and competing for wallet share um, in a lot of ways. Both of them have really strong e-commerce platforms. I think that's helped. Um, but even on a broader scale, I think if you look at department store like JCPenney or Macy's, who last year had negative comparable sales and compare that to somebody like Walmart or Target that had, you know, positive mid single digit sales. Um, it's just really two completely different tracks um, in terms of performance. And, you know, I think the same could be said, you mentioned Burlington, Burlington, TJ Maxx, Ross. I think that kind of discount retailer sector has done fairly well. People seem to love buying designer stuff at, at cheaper prices. So, and, and I think that sector also probably holds up pretty well in a recession scenario um, where people are scaling back a little bit on spending. Definitely more so than like the traditional full-priced um, department stores and mall-based retailers. So I think the trends that we've seen over the last couple of years of, of kind of winners and losers in, in that space, I think that'll just continue even more so going forward. Um, and, you know, to the, to the eventual demise of the department stores, I don't know who kind of replaces a lot of the vacant boxes that we're going to see. Um, I, Dick's, for example, has been kind of expanding over the last 15 years. Dick's and Burlington were two of the more common names that you heard that would maybe take over an old Sears box. And I think in kind of post COVID world, most retailers are doing whatever they can to kind of shore up cash and put themselves in a better liquidity position. So for most of them, that means kind of scaling back repositioning or expansion, new store openings, et cetera. Burlington said the other day that they would definitely be doing that. So, um, you know, to the extent that any of those off mall retailers, the Dicks and the Burlingtons of the world were actually taking some mall space, I think that kind of slows down and, and goes away and just creates an even bigger issue than we already have on our hands for, for these malls. So Katie and Dan, uh, we talked a little bit, you know, before we started recording, how many malls did you visit uh, in the time leading up to and, and, you know, after you put on this position? Yeah, I think we visited a lot of CMDX6 malls, but probably over the course of a couple of years. Um, the ones that were like a quicker, closer drive, we we maybe visited more than once and um, brought along other colleagues, et cetera. Um, but over the years, I've definitely been on to various U.S. cities on um, extensive mall tours, usually by myself, which 
Um, I've complained about it at times, but I find it kind of fun. It's a little more fun when you go with a group, but. Um, we there's a lot of peer out. pressure. When, was there a lot of peer pressure to not eat the Aunt Annie's pretzels at the mall <laughs> and to go across the street to the 7-Eleven? Like we can't be helping the other side of the trade eating at the, at the food percent. You, you need to talk to our, um, our boss, Mark Rosenthal. He forbids me from even buying a bottle of water in any mall that's in CMBX6 or any short position. <laughs> that sounds like, like my can, kind of guy. All in. <laughs> Though we had, a lovely, we had a lovely lunch at the Olive Garden that was not part of the collateral of Crystal Mall. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was delightful. Their wine list is, is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> But we even sent our uh, our our RMBS trader uh, Josh Nestor to uh, out, out to Ve- you know for the Vegas conference, which is more of a resi conference. We even sent him out to uh, fashion outlets both years, um, which he thanks us for because uh, he was very nervous. But you know, I figured that way he'd lose less money gambling. So. <laughs> That's he great. was very disappointed that the axe throwing place wasn't open yet. <laughs> but maybe next year. <laughs> um, if that hasn't been sold, it is definitely, he's definitely going back. <laughs> back to the, the borrower side of things. Um, you know, to date, we've seen very little jingle mail. We've seen a couple of Washington prime examples of them throwing the keys back over the last, you know, two or three years from loans that were made, uh, early last decade. Um, the thesis has been, you know, the better malls, the Simon malls, the, you know, the old GGP stuff that, has since been t- taken over by Brookfield, you know, that that would survive better, higher quality, better uh, institutional support. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that that was true before COVID? And do you think that um, the thesis still holds if it ever held that guys with, you know, Apple stores and higher end destination uh, amenities would, would outpace some of the B's and C's? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair question. You know, I think most people would agree that the Washington Prime and, and CBLs of the world are in the worst position just from a capital and the quality of their portfolio perspective. Um, and to your to your comment about Jingle Mail, I think, you know, a lot of these loans that were underwritten as either interest only or in general with low coupons, it kind of made term defaults less likely which, you know, Dan talked about before, we were expecting a lot of these to be maturity defaults. Um, That's definitely sped up now. We're seeing the announcements by, you know, Washington Prime even before COVID, but CBL more recently um, in general on the CMBS malls where they're handing back the keys. I do think we'll still see a little bit of that from, you know, the Simon and Brookfields of the world. Of course, they're generally better positioned um, in this type of environment, but I think a lot of, I think people overlook the fact that a lot of their CMBS malls, like particularly CMBX6, are really like the bottom of the barrel in terms of where they are in their portfolio quality-wise. Um, so they, over the years, we've seen Simon and GGP and, you know, stronger mall sponsors hand back the keys all the time. They're smart. They're strategic about when they walk away from CMBS debt. So I don't think that changes. It's just, you know, certain malls are better positioned to withstand it. And CMBX 6 in particular, um, I think are really just some of the lowest quality and, and they'll be 
just as quick to walk away um, as maybe CBL and Washington Prime and other lower quality mall uh, right. sponsors will be. There was certainly plenty of evidence of that uh, 2010 and earlier where Simon and, and GGT, GGP decided to, uh, to walk away. So it wouldn't be something new, as you suggested. Um, before I get to my last question, um, I do want to give a public service announcement. Uh, both Katie and Dan do tweet. I find their tweets really useful. Um, they are very much on top of uh, sales trends at many of the biggest retailers, um, what their trends have been uh, over the recent earnings cycle um, and so forth, where they're opening and closing stores, what their trends have been in terms of projected growth and so forth. So uh, it has been a useful. Um, what are their, what are your handles guys? Uh, mine's Dan J. McNamara. Very simple. Um, I think mine's Katie eleven thirty. Katie. Great stuff. I, you know, I, I, I have you on my uh, short list of things I look for every morning in case I missed uh, news announcements, and and frequently I do, and that's very helpful. Uh, anything else for you, for Joe, before I go to my last question? Well, I just wanted to ask. You know, from a I'm more of a CRE guy, obviously. Um, very involved in a lot of this CMBX stuff as well from a product perspective. But yeah, I guess the most kind of interesting part of all of this to me is still the, the, the fact that, you know, you guys can go out and investigate the performance of the underlying collateral with your own eyes. Do you have any, you know, specific uh, anecdotes or stories from, from trips that you took that where you just said, wow, this is crazy. I can't believe no one else has thought of doing this or vice versa, are there some diamonds in the rough in there? Or, you know, did you ever break the rules, Katie? Did you ever buy a bottle of water at any of these malls? <laughs> this is too good to pass up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, we've, I've been in a situation where I've gotten yelled at by a security guard for taking pictures, which is when you know the mall owner really doesn't want, you know, evidence of the state of the mall getting out. Um, you know, we've had some interesting things you can uncover a little bit by actually physically seeing the property. Like I think we noticed when we went to Crystal Mall that there were a lot of empty spaces that it was almost as if they'd given up on trying to lease it out. So they made it into something else. And then that was kind of helping kind of boost the occupancy numbers. Um, so that was kind of fun. Like there was a community workspace that we were joking. It was like a you know, budget, we work, um, where you could just go work for free at, at Crystal Mall. So it's kind of fun to find and really understand kind of the what's going on behind the scenes and where the numbers come from. Um, I don't know, Dan, can you think of any other fun stories from our mall tours? Uh, the most fun I had was at the Olive Garden, so. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not, we're not, not in line, the not, not in line collateral. No. Nope. <laughs> A couple of years ago, Morgan Stanley and others put out a, a number which said that, you know, the inline guys had an average somewhere between 300 and 350 squ bucks a square foot to kind of make it work. Is that still kind of the operating assumption or is it kind of higher or lower than that now? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. There's not a ton of transparency into like if, if you're looking at a specific mall, what the sales inline sales are for individual tenants. But they do have a little bit of wiggle room in that I think the rents that they get charged are somewhat of a, a reflection of what they're able to pay. 
rather than just ones that rate for everybody. So um, Dan doesn't let me talk about occupancy costs, but um, <laughs> for those that are familiar with how that works, um, you know, they, they, they are able to, when their sales are go down and their cost of rent is flat, their occupancy cost is said to go up and that obviously eats into margins. So they usually use that as a bargaining chip with landlords to be able to negotiate rents lower. So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Obviously that's not great for the mall landlord who ends up collecting less rents. Um, but I think if a mall landlord's desperate to keep the tenant, then, then they work with them in that sense. So um, I don't know what exactly, you know, the break even would be, but that's kind of. I don't know if this will run afoul of, of what Dan was uh, cutting you off of before not talking about the expense side of things, but do you have a number in terms of percentage by which landlord expenses will go up as a result of COVID, higher janitorial, uh, more cleaning needs, you know, higher quality cleaning, you know, new tools and so forth. Is that part of your calculus yet? It's not yet just because no one's really giving enough numbers or information for us to be able to come up with a good assumption. But I think um, based on what mall rates have said and retailers in general, it's, it's going to be higher for some time. That's Right. That's all we know so far. Okay. Martha, anything else for you before we get to this uh, last bullet point? No, but you've got my suspense built up for the last <laughs> question here. So the last Fine. one we've had, uh, if there were a sequel to the big short, the big shorter or the big short too, I'm not sure what they'll, uh, the they'll call it. <laughs> the big shorter. Who would Bigger you want short. to play you on the big screen if, uh, you know, if they had characters akin to Brad Pitt and Steve Carell and Christian Bale, who played the big shorters uh, in the Michael Lewis screen version a couple of years ago. Yeah, sure. That's a good question. Um, can I pick for Dan? I think I know. Sure. Yes, please. Um, I'm going <laughs> to go out and <laughs> say Dan probably wants Ben Affleck to play him, oh. being that he's a Boston guy. And okay. I would say... Tom Brady, if he was a better actor, although he was pretty entertaining in the uh, golf match the other day. But <laughs> he was. I think I, I'm going to have to go with Ben Affleck for Dan. Dan's looking pretty happy over there. That's a pretty yeah. good call. <laughs> Listen, I'll take Ben Affleck. I mean, to be honest with you, my wife actually. thinks I look like Vince Vaughn. Uh, so <laughs> I, I like his movies, but he's significantly older than me. So I don't know what that says. So uh, <laughs> no. as a Boston sports fan and, uh, you know, I moved to New York 16 years ago, I, I'd take Affleck or Brady all day. Yeah. I think and, I need somebody uh, pretty nerdy to play me. Maybe like a Natalie Portman. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah. I like that. Dan, do you want to throw in something for Katie or do you want to uh, play the gentleman here? Yeah, there's no upside there. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Thanks guys for joining us today. And I'm Martha, I'll let you wrap it up. Yeah, with that, we'll close this special podcast. Thanks to our guests, Katie and Dan. And thanks to our producer, Keegan St. Ange. Join us later this week as we look at what happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, send us an email at podcast.trep.com and maybe we'll turn it into a special podcast. Until then, visit trep.com for more info and subscribe to the Trepwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.